Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's been a hot minute. Um, my name is Jacob. If we haven't met, I get to serve here as the youth pastor, but you also might know me as the one from the chili cook-off with the bullhorn that came in here and started yelling at you guys. So I, I considered uh, using the bullhorn this morning to preach the first part of my sermon, um, but then I couldn't find it. Someone has usurped the, the bullhorn from me. I, and so it leaves me no other choice but to buy my own bullhorn and come back better than ever. No one will thwart me. Um, so Pastor Paul is away with his family today, so he invited me to write up a, a little message for you guys um, to share this morning. And I'm excited to do it. I'm honored to be here. Um, today we're going to be continuing our journey through the writings of Luke, uh, specifically looking at the work of God's Spirit in the adventures of the first generation of the church. But before we open the scriptures, I want to bring you into a moment, a story from my life that, that gives me chills and shudder, ev shudders every time I think about it. It kind of haunts me. You know those, those memories that you're trying to go to sleep and the thing that keeps you awake is that thought, that picture, you in that scenario? Okay, so this is one of mine. I'm letting you into a vulnerable moment. I'm like, it's like I'm bringing out the therapy couch. I'm going to lay out and I'm going to tell you all my woes. There you go. Oh yeah, I have, I have drawings for today, so that's going to be fun. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> so I'll begin telling you my woes. It all started when I was 16 years old. Um, one morning in, 15, or in 2015, I was sitting over here on the right, as I always do with my family, um, and they decided that, uh, to announce from the stage that they were going to be holding a summer missions trip to Mexico. Um, now, they announced that they were going to be holding this. I am not the traveling type at all. If I could stay in my apartment for the rest of my life, you would get no argument from me. Um, I'm not the traveling type, but somehow my dad, who's sitting over there right now, as he has for the past 11 years, um, my, somehow my dad was able to coax me into going with him on this trip. So we started attending the meetings, we started to get ready, and this was really my first time out of the country. I remember having to go and get a passport picture taken because I didn't have a passport up until this point. 
So here's a picture of what I would have looked like. My dad's with me. Um, this is what a picture of what I would have liked, like, looked like at 16 years old. I'm aware I look like I'm 11. I'm aware. Um, it was a dark period of my life. Um, but I promise you I was old enough to operate a motor vehicle. Uh, and that's scary. The main thrust of this missions trip was to connect with some of the locals and to help them with some uh, projects around the area. So, for instance, my team went to go repaint the local orphanage, um, and then we held a little carnival there for the kids. So that's us with the popcorn machine. We had uh, a cotton candy machine. We had all these games. We had face painting. It was a ton of fun. And uh, m before we left for the trip, my role in all of this was to prepare some simple card tricks and other magic illusions that I could use to impress the kids um, at this carnival. Um, so before we left on the trip, I went with my friend Isaiah Shields. Some of you know him. Um, he was on this trip with me. We both went to visit Pastor Rudy Tinoco, who is the uh, lead pastor at Old Town Church, um, which is, used to be Sunrise Forest Grove. Uh, and many people know that Rudy, uh, in addition to being a pastor, is also an illusionist. He performs small gigs and stuff like that, so he graciously set aside some time to help us learn some simple magic tricks that we could take with us on this trip. Now, I took my job very seriously. I spent hours polishing and perfecting my moves. I tried them out on my family, and I was getting confident. On the 20-hour van ride down, I spent several more hours fidgeting with my deck of cards, trying to make sure it looked perfect. With my fake rope and my foam balls, I was determined to astonish, shock, and amaze. I was transcending mere mortals. Nothing could stop me from becoming the next David Blaine. So when we finally arrived, we began holding this carnival, and I could feel myself starting to sweat. And it wasn't because it was hot outside. It was because I realized that there was a pretty massive language barrier, and no one explained to these kids that this sweaty 11-year-old was going to come up and try to perform feats of sorcery with them. So it looks like I'm coming up and trying to just start a like a, a game with them, like some sort of card game, um, it, it fell flat completely. Um, and, and so, for, but I, my fascination with magic kind of started at that point. So fast forward to after the trip, I was determined to continue defying the odds. <laughs> um, the Disney Channel had told me to follow my heart, and my heart craved the shock and awe of the crowds. So I went to work looking up all the magic tricks that I could on YouTube and learning them um, as best as I could. I, I learned how to throw cards, I learned how to palm cards, I learned how to false cut, and how to double lift, and all those cool things, and I was becoming legendary. I could picture the adoring fans, the disbelief and the bamboozlement, the black corduroy vest filled with false decks and rigged cards and birds um, that would fly out. And after a few months, I finally decided to test my skills. I told my high school crush that I was into magic, which is a great pickup line, by the way. Um, I'm, hi, I'm into magic. Um, and she, she expressed some vague interest in that, um, and so I pounced. And I told her that I would show her a new trick the next time that I saw her. So I went home. And I picked the best trick that I could, the one that would do the most damage. I practiced it again and again and again, and I researched techniques on how to polish it and make it look perfect. I repeated it for hours, and I went to school the next day, butterflies in my stomach, thinking, this is it. 
if I could perform this trick well enough, I was sure she would marry me right there on the spot. <laughs> I found her after class. I pulled her aside. I flashed her my deck of cards. And she remembered, so she gave me her attention. My breathing started to get heavy, and my hands started to shake. And uh, I, I attempted the trick, and I completely messed it up. Ah! And so she's obviously, like, she's looking back at me. She's, she's embarrassed on my behalf, and she's confused about all of this. But she was gracious enough to let me try it again, which, for those of you who know magic, trying the trick again is never, never good feeling. Never good. You're already in a bad place if you have to try the trick again. But I tried it again, and I messed it up again. Um, I walked away, and I was mortified. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why I'm still single to this day. <laughs> uh, now, of course, that idea is ridiculous. The idea that with magic tricks I could control the heart of another person through what I'm saying or doing that I might be able to um, be like a puppet master over another person. But I wonder if we know that that's ridiculous in this circumstance with another human, then how can we think that we can control God through the things that we say and do. Thank you. <laughs> so I'll get off the therapy couch now. Um, the reason I share all of this with you, this story, is because today we're going to be looking into the story of another magician, another sorcerer, um, probably a bit more impressive than me. Uh, today's passage is the story of Simon the Sorcerer. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. If you'll go there with me, um, we're going to be starting off in verse 9. Um, it starts like this. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city uh, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. So, this guy is living my dream. Uh, <laughs> no, he, right off the bat, it's important to note that this is not Simon the Apostle, not Simon Peter. It's also not Simon the Zealot. This is a different Simon. This is one that probably had never met Jesus before. And yes, I know that there are too many Simons, and I'm writing a letter about it to the committee trying to get that changed. It frustrates me too. Sometimes I feel like the New Testament is just filled with people called Mary, John, or Simon. And if you throw a dart at someone in the Bible, you're probably going to get a Mary, a John, or a Simon. Anyways, that's besides the point. So this is, this is not Peter or Simon the Zealot. This is a different Simon. A second thing to notice is that the apostles are now branching outside of Jerusalem. They're going into Samaria because of the persecution that they're facing in, uh, in the homeland of Judea. We learned a little bit about that last week with Pastor James talking about the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr, the first person killed for their faith. Uh, and Saul, who was standing there when Stephen was martyred, is now on the hunt after all of the Christians that he can find trying to capture them and bring them into prison. So they're escaping Jerusalem. They're moving out from there. And Philip, one of the servants that would have been anointed or ordained with Stephen, has moved now into Samaria to preach the gospel. And in verse 8, right above the passage that we were talking about, it says, there was much joy in that city because the gospel is now taking root in another place. 
So this is a big moment. This is kind of where the book of Acts begins to kick off. This is where the action starts. Um, thirdly and lastly, we got to talk about Samaria for a second. The land of Samaria had kind of a tricky relationship with the Jewish people. It's long, it's a confusing story to tell. Um, some of you know it better than I do. Some of you may not have heard any of it at all. So I'm going to give you kind of the 30,000 foot view of what happened between uh, Judea and Samaria. When the kingdom of Israel had split about a thousand years before this, because King Solomon's kid was being a jack wagon, um, it's, it's split into the ten northern tribes, uh, which would be called Israel from then on, and then you have the two southern tribes, which are called Judah, and for the rest of time. Um, now, both Israel and Judah ended up getting captured. They ended up getting invaded and conquered by different people groups. Different people... Um, different groups of people, different empires conquered the two of them, but they both ended up going into exile. So during their time in chains, uh, the northern Israel, the ten tribes up top, started to give in to some of the Greek and pagan influences that were bombarding them during this time. Um, they started to give in, they caved a little bit, um, and they started assimilating some of these ideas that, that would have been foreign to the Israelite faith. Whereas Judah, the southern tribe, uh, tribes, uh, they tried their best to reject the influences of these pagan um, bombardments, you could say, uh, and to keep their story and their devotion alive and pure. So by this point in history, the Jews looked down on the people of Israel, or what's now called Samaria, because they saw them as kind of like half-bloods or traitors. They were like a diluted, watered-down version of a Jew. And in this kind of makes sense of why the sort of pagan, sort of Jewish Samaritans were taken in by this magician named Simon. Uh, if Simon had been doing his thing in Judah, he probably would have been severely punished or maybe just kicked out of the land entirely. But in Samaria, the people were more open to other strains of spirituality, worshiping other gods, other ideas. Now, they still would have said that they were the chosen people, chosen by the God of Israel. Uh, they just figured that the relationship that they had with the God of Israel was a little bit more open. So this Simon guy comes around, and he starts pulling coins out of people's ears. And people start thinking, maybe this guy is the walking, breathing, handkerchief-disappearing embodiment of God's great power. Uh, the passage goes on in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, so Philip has gone into Samaria, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, and this is the key, he was amazed. Do you notice the reversal of roles there? Simon was the cat's pajamas, the bee's knees, the big man on campus up until this point. He was the one that was amazing people with his wonders and magic. But then Philip rolls in, and he's performing the same if not greater signs in the name of Jesus. And it's no longer Simon who is amazing the people, but it's rather it's Simon who is amazed. Simon is sold on this Jesus guy. He hears the good news of the kingdom of God. And he becomes a true believer. And he even gets baptized and joins Philip's posse. Uh, things are looking up for Simon, who used to be called the sorcerer. Then we hit verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that, the Samar that Samaria had received the word of God, 
they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the headline gets back to Jerusalem about Samaria receiving the gospel, and they decide to send in the big guns. Peter and John, two of the apostles closest to Jesus, pack their bags and they head for Samaria so that they can pray for the Spirit to fall. Now, this is a complete shift in the apostles' attitude towards the Samaritans. If we jump back into the book of Luke for a moment, we'll see the same John who's now walking with Peter to go to Samaria to pray that the Spirit falls on them. That same John we'll see with his brother James asking for something very different to fall on the Samaritans. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 9. Verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, him being Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who, were, who went into the, and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So the, the locals find out that, that Jesus is moving in towards Jerusalem, and they're like, we don't want anything to do with you. And that kind of highlights the rivalry that's going on between Jerusalem and the Samaritans, right? And when his disciples, James and John, the same John that's going to Samaria now, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from, from in heaven to consume them? Do you want us to tell fire to come down and consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So when Jesus is around, these guys want to call fire down on the Samaritans. And now the same guys want not fire, but the Spirit to fall on the Samaritans. Is that a coincidence? I think not. <laughs> but anyhow, we'll move into another weird part of the passage. Um, the text says that they were all baptized in the name of Jesus, but that the Spirit hadn't fallen yet. What does that mean? Why hadn't the Spirit fallen on them yet? I'm not really sure. This is a puzzling moment, uh, a puzzling little mention, and it doesn't receive a lot of explanation. In fact, it doesn't seem like the author, Luke, necessarily wants us to know. I have a theory for how we might read this, but I'm going to kind of rabbit ear this and come back to it later. So we'll come back to this. Um, let's go on to verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them, they being Peter and John, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this, now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, uh, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Oh, Simon. <laughs> Saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay, may lie, uh, lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we all know that this is uh, a faux pas. We all recognize that this is probably not the best move to make. Simon basically just attempted to bribe the apostles to give them the Holy Spirit, or give him the Holy Spirit as like a, as like a tool or a gimmick. Yikes. <laughs> um, but put yourself in Simon's shoes. Simon had lived his life up until this point, using dark powers and deceitful tricks to get people's attention on him. And at this point, he's been a Christian for all of what, like two weeks? At this point... He's just going back to what he knows how to do. He's going back to work. He's buying another magic trick for his shows, or he's talking to another shaman uh, that can give him a spirit that will go with him as he performs. It's clear that even though he believed the gospel, 
And even though he was baptized, he just hadn't really understood what God he was messing with here. So Simon Peter looks at this other Simon, and he doesn't pull any punches in his response. Take a look at what Peter says. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither, lo- uh, neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that in you, or that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Oof. You can probably picture the fire in Peter's eyes as he practically puts Simon in a timeout. Peter is really laying into him here. But I think behind the harsh and nearly mean language that we see Peter using here towards Simon, we have to hear the anxious pleading of a man who has denied Christ himself. Peter was no stranger to misunderstanding Jesus. Peter had himself made a couple of slip-ups when trying to wrap his head around the upside-down king of the upside-down kingdom. Maybe we should read these words less as the scolding of an angry parent and more as the desperate warnings of a man who's already stepped on that bear trap before. Peter sees that Simon is in the gall of bitterness and the bond and is bound to iniquity. Or in other words, that Simon is on thin ice and that he's still tied to his sin. And he tells him, therefore, to repent. Remember what Paul talked about a couple weeks back. To repent, to follow after, to rethink, to turn around, and to pray to the Lord for forgiveness. I think it's important for us, in looking at the dynamic here between Peter and Simon, to recognize that this is instructive for us. When we see a brother or sister in need, I'm sorry, not in need, in sin, which is a need, um, they need repentance. When we see a brother or sister in sin, it isn't loving to keep quiet. It is your business. Not for gossip, not for putting them down, not for getting a leg up over them, that's all Pharisee stuff, but for warning them and for keeping them from stumbling. Because you can't say what Cain said of Abel when God confronted him. You are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. So anyways, we'll move on from there. Simon is shocked by Peter's response, as I think any of us would be, and changes his tune right quick. He says in verse 24, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Simon sees the seriousness of what he's done. He sees that this God will not be bought or swayed by our bribes. This God cannot be handled like a tool or a gimmick. This God is no magic trick, and his spirit is no spell. So it's not that hard to figure out the moral of the story. The Holy Spirit, God himself, cannot be bought or sold. He can't be possessed in that way. But what does all that have to do with us here today? I don't know about you, but I've never slipped a faith healer a 20 to gain his powers. The events of this story feel a little bit foreign to me. Maybe they do to you as well. And I think if we read too quickly or too incautiously, we may even see this story as a bit juvenile, as a bit silly. We might walk away thinking, this Simon guy sure is an idiot. 
What a primitive mindset to have about God. But I think the truth is that we see the root of Simon's sin all over the church. Simon did not want to contain. He didn't want to be a container of God, like a vessel. He wanted to control God like a ventriloquist. So that's the big idea for today. We're vessels, not ventriloquists. And it even has alliteration, so you can remember it easier. <laughs> we are vessels, not ventriloquists. Now, most of us, I think, probably know what a ventriloquist is, but in case you don't, a ventriloquist is a puppeteer, some, a puppet master, the one who pulls the strings. We are not ventriloquists, we aren't puppet masters, and God is not our puppet. Far from that, we are vessels of the Holy Spirit, vessels of God's kingdom, vessels of the gospel. We are ambassadors, we're servants. God is not ours to own, and beyond that, really, we are not ours to own. And this is where Simon goes wrong. Simon saw the Holy Spirit as a power, not a person. Simon saw him as an object, not a subject. And so it's only reasonable for him to go about trading one object, one item, for another object, another item, his money for the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is God himself, and God is not for sale. He's not on the shelf at Costco, something that you can put behind glass at an antique shop. He doesn't come in a magic kit. He can't be bought, he can't be traded, and he can't be bargained for. You can't own him or possess him or manipulate him. And so this is where I'll unrabbit ear us here, and we'll go back to the theory um, for what Luke means when he says that the spirit hadn't fallen yet, even though these people were baptized. To be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus is, I think, akin to taking Jesus for yourself. Because Jesus was God-made flesh. Jesus is God given over into the hands of humanity. Because Jesus was God-made flesh, he took a body and he gave himself, it's God giving himself, into the hands of humans. Even to the point of the cross, right? There's actually a moment in the Gospels where Jesus is sold for silver. So Jesus can be sold because Jesus was flesh in the world. He was given into our hands. But when the Father sent the Spirit, the Spirit was not meant to be controlled by human hands. Rather, humans were going to be a home for the Holy Spirit, a vessel of the Holy Spirit. Jesus may have been in our hands, but the Holy Spirit had his hands around us. So to be baptized in Jesus' name is like our water baptism. It's to take Christ and his gospel for ourselves. And this is a crucial part of the process of discipleship. It's proclaiming Jesus as your own Lord, as your own deliverer, as your own king. In the first baptism, we take God for ourselves. We hear the good news, we accept the offer of salvation, and we believe, just like Simon did. And our first baptism, our baptism in water, is in our hands. We decide when it happens. It's our decision. But there comes a time in every believer's life whether at the moment of their baptism or before their baptism or after their baptism, like the Samaritans in this story, when the Spirit falls, 
And maybe that happens through the church laying their hands on you, or maybe it happens in a quiet moment alone, or maybe that happens in a wild mystical experience. You'll hear stories of all kinds of things happening. But no matter the case, the common denominator, the thing that's true of all of them is that you can't bring it upon yourself. When the spirit falls, it's no longer you who are grabbing hold of God. God grabs hold of you. God seizes you. He adopts you. He makes you his own. And from that point on, God may be yours, but only because you are his. You get a share in his household, in his inheritance. He is your God, but only because you belong to him as a servant, as a child. Now, I think the American church really likes the first part of the equation. We like to take God for ourselves. We like to pray the prayer and then go on about our business. We like to use God as a form of therapy, as something to center us and to make us feel whole and feel purpose in our lives and inner peace. The gospel becomes a self-help tool. We take God on our own terms, not his. He becomes a mechanism for our own consummation, for our own consuming. And certainly, there are certain strands that have really abused the power of the spiritual gifts that he's given us, using for instance, the gift of teaching to earn clout or to gain a crowd, using the gift of healing to make money, using the gift of tongues to exclude people or to seem holier than thou, using the gift of uh, mercy even. This is a really new one, but using the gift of mercy as like virtue signaling, like our church is better than yours, or, you know, we have something to offer the world. We take God where God benefits us, And then we leave him where he doesn't. But the end goal is always me, myself, and I. And like Simon, we want the people's eyes on us. We're the show. I think much of the church is baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, so to speak. But not nearly as many in the church have been taken or seized by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has not yet fallen on all of us. He hasn't crushed us. He hasn't made his house in us. We call ourselves a temple to the Holy Spirit, but we won't allow the Spirit to possess us, to own us. And in doing so, I think we grieve him. The falling of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the baptism or immersion of the Holy Spirit, as it's called in other places, drives at the root of all of our human fears. In it, he begins to take away our control. He knocks down our defenses, he vetoes our reservations, and we're no longer our own, independent, deciding things for ourselves. No, we and everything about us is owned by someone else. It's the property of someone else. Nothing is safe, nothing is sacred. You can't hold anything back. Some of us us have tried to. (laughs) It doesn't work. Everything, every part of us eventually becomes his. Now, maybe my theory is off. Maybe that's not at all what he's talking about here. Um, Maybe the baptism into Jesus and the falling of the Holy Spirit is talking about something entirely different. I'm only 24. I have permission to be dumb. But in the end, this theory is only trying to emphasize the issue that's clear as day in Simon's heart. It's only an emphasis, an extrapolation of what's going on with Simon. And that's clear as day. Simon wasn't willing to be an object of God's purposes. He wanted to use God 
for himself. But God wants vessels, not ventriloquists. And isn't this basically the sin of the garden? Isn't this exactly what humanity took, or what took humanity off course? The fruit was the wisdom of God for the taking. It was the ability to make decisions for ourselves, to know good and evil ourselves. It was the idea of freedom, a godlike freedom. The promise that the serpent made was that the woman would become like God. The serpent coaxed the woman into becoming the potter and making God into the clay, in becoming a ventriloquist with God as the puppet. The root of Simon's sin, the root of much of the sin in the church, is running away from our creatureliness. We run away from the fact that we are not our own. We chase the status of creator, of one who doesn't need anyone else. And in doing so, we have to deny our own creator. Simon wanted the power of God for himself. But Peter responds to Simon by pointing out that he's still chained to his sin. That he's in the bond of iniquity because he thought he could obtain the gift of God with money. And here's where we see the real irony. The very thing that God was pleased to give of his own heart, of his own accord through his church. The very thing that God did not want to hold back from Simon, but that he wanted to give to Simon as a gift. The Holy Spirit, God himself, became a stumbling stone. To pray and ask God for the Holy Spirit is not wrong. In fact, Jesus encourages us to do so and promises that God will give in great measure to those who ask. The apostles come to Samaria just so that they can pray for the Spirit to fall on the Samaritans. The problem isn't the Holy Spirit. Simon went wrong in going from a beggar to a buyer, from a child asking to a merchant negotiating. He thought that he could exchange some money for a tool and walk away with God in a box. Simon went wrong in seeing himself not as a vessel, but as a ventriloquist. And I think that we can fall into the same error. So as we let this passage interrogate us, I think we need to be reminded that we can't buy the gift of God with money or with anything. It doesn't matter how fancy your study Bible is. It doesn't matter how nice your Sunday clothes are or how flowery your prayers are or how thorough your confessions are. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you've memorized or how long you've been serving in the church. It just doesn't matter. It's not something we can earn for ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but just about every day I wrestle with the Simon and me that wants to control God's power for myself, that wants to say the magic words in prayer, for instance, or that wants to use the Bible as a weapon against people that I disagree with, or that wants to force the world to accept my Christianity, that wants to force my culture to embrace me so I don't get persecuted. But these are all ways, and there's so many more ways than that, that we can find ourselves trying to seize God's power for ourselves. We want to be the author of the story. But I'll drill down on a really personal one for me, the one that I probably struggle with the most. The the problem I I struggle the most with is seeing my obedience, the few good works I've done, the pursuit of righteousness, my discipleship, as a way of guaranteeing that God will remain with me, 
that his favor won't leave me. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's salvation by works. <laughs> it's easy uh, to slip into this for me, but it's basically seeing my good works not as a gift from God, but as a leash that I can use to pull God close to me, that will assure me that he'll be with me and that he'll bless me. And so obedience even, in a backwards way, for me, obedience becomes one of the strings that I use to puppet God around. And in doing so, I end up treating God like a gumball machine. Just put in what it wants, and it'll give you what you want. Whether that's good grades, or a stable career, or a loving family, or a healthy body, or any of the other things that we pine after. The list could be very long. But what Jesus offers us has never been divinity. He doesn't offer us a seat on God's throne. He offers us true humanity, humanity like he lived in complete submission to the Father. That's the humanity he wants to bring us into, giving ourselves fully again into the hands of the creator so that we can learn to be creatures again. So maybe some of you can remember back to a moment in your life where the spirit fell on you. And you knew that from that day forward, you were not your own, that you did not belong to yourself. For those of you who remember a day like that, I want to ask you the question, are you still as surrendered, still as possessed, still as crushed by the weight of the spirit as you were back then? And if not, maybe it's time to pray for the spirit to be poured out so that you can learn again to release control, to learn to be a creature again. Maybe some of you have been baptized into Jesus' name, so to speak, and you've accepted his offer of salvation, you believe the gospel, and maybe you've even been baptized, but you don't feel like the Spirit of God has seized you yet, just like the Samaritans at the beginning of the story. Maybe you, you're still living like you're calling the shots, like you belong to yourself, without a real sense of purpose or mission or calling. And if so, I want to ask you whether it's time that you might start praying for that. Take that prayer up as like an anthem as you leave this place. Keep praying it. Keep begging for the Spirit to be poured out on you. And man, we're going to have our prayer team up in the front rows each of each of these um, front rows here. And I, I know that they would love to pray with you, to lay their hands on you, and to pray for the Spirit to fall on you. Those of us who have had it happen to us, who have felt the spirit fall, can attest it is far better to be in his hands than yours. Um, finally, some of you probably are still wrestling with whether or not you even believe the gospel to be true. And that's okay, we're glad you're here. My prayer is gonna be for you. It's gonna be for you that in this moment, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection finally clicks. That you understand the weight of God giving himself to you in the person of Jesus. I'm going to pray, and I expect that some of you will, it'll finally click. And in that moment, if you're one of the ones it clicks for, you know what to do next. Go and be baptized. We'll have people out in the lobby ready for you that would love to help you in that next step. But you know the next step. Go and be baptized. So let me pray, um, and then we'll go into communion.
Father, at varying stages, each person in this room, I believe, is holding something back from you. And they may not even know what it is yet. I trust that you'll reveal it to them. But each of us are holding something back from you, a place where we want to be God over our lives. We don't want you to be God over our, over our lives. And we may even be trying to use you to keep that area of our life alive in our own control and our own hands. So whether it's somebody who's not sure they can believe the gospel and wants to hold that doubt for themselves, or whether it's somebody who's been following Jesus for a long time and just has one area they haven't given up, or maybe an area they gave up a long time ago and is back. They're taking control again, Lord. I pray that you'd send your spirit to free us, that we would know that we are not our own, that you want us to be in right relationship with you as a creator and we as the creatures because that's the way that life was meant to be lived for us. And so many of our aches and our pains are due to running from that. So I pray that you would, you would order us rightly before you that you would pull us into that submission, that you would use us as vessels and help us to stop using you as ventriloquists. We ask all these things in the name of your son who you gave to us. Amen.